do literally anything else and your career will be in a better place. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, for the release of our new uh, Guy Ritchie King Arthur movie, I think it's called King Arthur Legend of the Sword, we are taking a look at one of his older movies called Rock and Rolla, and we're looking at that. And uh, and the theme we're looking at is essentially like it's social stratification, but it's really about order and hierarchy in real person language. And to take care of this episode, I have a brand new guest, someone I've been wanting to get on the show for a while. I have Diego Crespo. So thank you for being here, Diego. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I love the show and I'm very happy to, to be a part of it. Awesome. So before um, before we get into your recommendations and stuff like that, why don't you take a moment to uh, let people know where they can read or listen or see more of your work? Uh, yeah, you I, there's a lot. Uh, so I'm the editor-in-chief of my college's paper, so I have to plug that. Of course, El Paisano newspaper or El Paisano online. Uh, that's like a functioning newspaper, which is crazy that someone let me do that and I didn't burn it down to the ground. Uh, and I, I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, I also started with a, a podcast called The Waffle Press. It's a, my own design and started with a couple friends a couple years ago and then we just started taking it more seriously and i'm happy with the direction that's going and of course audiences everywhere.net which have been angels with me for uh <laughs> pushing deadlines and just not firing me and <laughs> uh yeah uh, follow me on twitter at dago waffles d-e-double-g-o waffles you can find links to everything i do there uh i've been on top film society uh, Real Film Chatter, of course, who also give me lots of early screenings to go to with them, and I love those guys, too. So nice. Those are the big ones. All right. Yeah, definitely check out his work. Uh, of course, uh, Diego and I both, uh, I guess, quote-unquote, work for audiences everywhere, so we both write for uh, for that site. So if you'd like to check out my work or his work, just check out Audiences Everywhere. All right, so before I get into the psychology, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I do. Uh, one, it might be kind of cheating, but it's another Guy Ritchie film. Hey, and I, I'm going to, I might throw people off with my recommendation. Uh, it's Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Okay. Uh, it's, I didn't like it when I first saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and then a uh, uh, fellow film tweeter, Josh Lewis, brought up a really well-written review of his on it. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm probably not going to agree, but I'll go back and watch it. And so, like... Uh, all, I think all of Guy Ritchie's films are, are in some ways about this, about hierarchy and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, Game of Shadows is about that battle, but between Sherlock Holmes and his greatest nemesis, uh, Professor Moriarty. But there's battle, while portrayed physically with action and you know plot and all that, those are all weird little machinations they use against each other. It just on the first viewing, it felt like a really generic summer action movie to me. Right. Uh, but then just look at the way it's directed and the way uh, Guy Ritchie moves the camera and what he focuses on. It's He's got some really sharp 
eyes for visuals and no, definitely. how to like express that in action. And so that one really caught me off guard when yeah. I, when I rewatched it. Nice. Good good choice. It's definitely a Guy Ritchie movie that is not as highly thought of as a, he's a very he's a director I think that gets a lot of strong reactions whether whether positive or negative and that one tended to get a lot of negative reactions. So it'd be interesting to kind of rewatch that um with with I think new eyes. I think the original Sherlock Holmes also got uh some strong reactions but I think probably more positive than negative and people really soured by the time the second one came along. Yeah, I, I, and I like both. I like both. But the second one is what really took me by surprise, and I rewatched them. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my second recommendation is, if you follow me on Twitter, you know I'm a big Michael Mann fan. Yes. So a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Naturally, I have to recommend one of his movies, uh, Heat, which feels like kind of the go-to great Michael Mann movie. That one kind of hits, like, the broadest uh, watchability factor, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, that one is is maybe about order on a more personal level about mm-hmm. people trying to determine whether or not they can be happy in a life of duty or without it, what they're bound by in life. Do want companionship? Do they, do they just, is, is their job all they have? And, you know, right. the jobs vary from criminal to, um, uh, police enterprises. And there, there is, I, there's a lot been said about heat it's it's a great movie but i think Wait, that one kind of filters. really has anyone ever seen that that seems like really <laughs> i mean come on no i mean heat is i mean it's one of those movies that the reason i haven't covered it on the show at this point is like what do i have to say about heat that hasn't already been said so i'm just going to talk for an hour about how great it is like everyone else does like that's not that's not super exciting uh but heat is a great movie to watch it's one of those movies that when i find out someone hasn't seen it it's one of those like very strong reactions like how dare you like you can dislike <laughs> it but you haven't seen it go watch it so anyone who's listening to the show right now who hasn't seen heat go watch heat it is worth the two and a half to three hours however long it is it's definitely worth your time oh absolutely All right, so now we're going to take a little break, and I will talk about the psychology, and then we'll bring Diego back to talk about rock and roll. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old, and what that means is... I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. All right, so it's time for the psychology section. Today, we're talking about social stratification. Uh, And it's important to note that we're going to be talking generally, but in the movie, it gets really specific because we are talking about a subculture, that of being kind of the the criminal element in London. But social stratification, loosely defined, is our way of categorizing people into socioeconomic strata based on their occupation and income, wealth, and social status or derived power. Now, remember, social status and derived power is something that's changeable, but also something that's affected by the many roles that you play, whether it be how you're employed, what race or ethnicity you were born as, uh, what sexuality that you that you express. All these things have an effect on your derived power and your social status. So stratification is the social position of a person within a social group 
geographic region or social unit. So in our kind of modern Western society, it's usually distinguished by three different classes. One, the upper class, two, the middle class, and three, the lower class. And of course, there's been much debate over the last few decades about whether there is a middle class, but we are definitely not going to get into that. So this categorization of people and societies can range from really complex societies to tribal and feudal societies, which can be based on relationships like classes of nobility and classes of peasants. Now, why do we have these structures? Like, what's the point? And really, the point of it is to kind of show the inequality of status among people. So the degree of social inequality can actually determine your social status or stratum. Generally speaking, very generally speaking, the greater the social complexity of the society, the more areas exist, the more, the more places you can fit in as far as social strata. Now, there's really four underlying principles when it comes to social stratification. First, social stratification is socially defined. So it's a property of society rather than the individual. So you can't really, you can do things to affect your social stratification, but you can't choose it. It is done by the society to you. Second, social stratification is reproduced from generation to generation. So this gets passed down where you are socially. Third, social stratification is universal is universal. So we actually find it in every society. Like, yes, it's variable because as we mentioned, the more complex the society is, the more different areas you can fit in. If you are in a tribal group, there are not very many social classes, right? Uh, so it gets more complex, but it is found in every single society. And fourth, social stratification involves not just this quantitative inequality, but qualitative beliefs about and attitudes about social status. So it's not just like, oh, I'm in this group, so I can't get this, or I can get this. We actually, we actually have different beliefs about different groups uh, when it comes to social status. All right, so we kind of talked about complexity. So when you're in a complex society, there's some different things that happen when it comes to social stratification. For instance, the total stock of value, valued goods is distributed unequally in these complex societies. So the most privileged people get a dispro disproportionate share of income power and other valued resources. So like, I'm sure you've heard people talk about like, you know, the top 1% get this, this much of a percentage of the wealth. That's what this is talking about. So the term stratification system is sometimes used to refer to these complex social relationships that generate these inequalities. The key components of those systems are one, social, social institutional processes that define certain types of goods as valuable. Two, the rules of allocation that distribute these goods across various positions in the division of labor, like how we value a physician over a farmer over a housewife. And three, the social mobility processes that link individuals to positions and thereby thereby generate unequal control over valued resources. So yes, there is a fair amount of social mobility in complex societies, but not so much at the very top and not so much at the very bottom. So that, and that's where the control really resides. So when it comes to research, there's a lot of variables, um, research and theory, really. So the social status variables that underlie social stratification are based on current social perceptions and attitudes about the characteristics of different groups of people. So many of these variables will cut across time and space. We have to understand like that the relative weight placed on each variable will differ from place to place over time. So one task of the research is actually to identify accurate mathematical models that explain how these variables combine to produce stratification in a given society at a given time. 
Um, one particular researcher named Grusky in 2011 gave an overview of the historical development of these sociological theories of social stratification and a summary of these contemporary theories and research in the field. So while many of these variables contribute to an understanding of social stratification have been long identified, the models of these variables and their actual role in affecting social stratification are really an active topic right now in research. But generally speaking, sociologists have recognized that there, there are no pure economic variables because social factors have an effect on economic value in general. So let's look at these variables. One is the aforementioned economic variables. So strictly quantitative economic variables um, can be useful to describe this social stratification because it explains how it's maintained. So income is, of course, the most common variable used. But the the dis but the distribution of individual accumulation of wealth tells us a lot more about individual well-being than, than income does just by itself. So wealth variables can really vividly illustrate variations in the well-being of groups in these stratified societies, which again is all societies. So even things as general as the gross domestic product, especially if you look at it per capita, can be used to describe economic inequality and stratification at the international level. The second group of variables is the social variables. So you can have quantitative and qualitative variables in this group. And it typically provides the most power in causal research regarding social stratification. So what are the important social variables? I mean, this probably will not surprise you, but it's gender, race, and ethnicity. So they all have an effect on social status, not only because of perceived or actual inequalities, but because we have ideas about gender, about race, and about ethnicity that actually affect the social stratification over time. Other things that can affect it are things like occupation, age, education, even education level of parents, and where a person lives, actually. Because if you think about it, I mean, I live in California, and there's going to be a lot more economic inequality in California than there probably will be in other places where the cost of living is not quite so high. And even the social perception of something like age, this is not just like we look down on teenagers, but also we have an ageist society, whereas we think of people who are over 65 as, quote unquote, over the hill or not able to contribute to society. And that actually affects people who are older, their ability to be hired and to actually, you know, get rid of some of that economic equality. We are kind of fighting against that. Okay, so before we end here, I wanted to talk briefly about gender, race and ethnicity and how it's affected how it affects social stratification. So gender, of course, is one of the most pervasive and prevalent social characteristics in which people use social distinctions. So yes, I think we are getting to a point where uh, gender is not just a binary and it is on a spectrum, but I think if you talk to the majority of people, they would err in the direction of it's a binary. So this is how people distinguish other people. So they're found in economic groups, they're found in kinship groups, they're even found in like caste-based stratification systems, so kind of everywhere. And not only that, there is an expectation of certain social roles that form along these gender lines. Some entire societies can be classified according to the rights and privileges according to women, or lack thereof, and especially when you associate it with ownership and focus on property rights. So like in patriarchal societies, these rights are usually just given to men and not to women. 
in matriarchal societies, it's the other way around. In supposed egalitarian societies, there's a lot of gray area there, and there's a lot more discussion, uh, not only about who holds the power, but the division of labor and the division of home care and all these things, you know, come under the microscope. But even in these societies, like in the United States, there are definite wage discrimination that definitely exists in these societies. So men will typically receive higher wages. So if you think about it, this this has an effect in a couple ways. One, it has the obvious effect that women are getting paid less for doing the same work that men are. The other, the other effect it has is say you are in a, a household with a man and a woman and you have kids and you want to take care of the kids as best you can. What is the smartest decision for the short term? You're not thinking about the long term. You're not thinking about, you know, the effect it's going to have on gender in the future. But for your family, for your kids, if only one person can work and men are going to get paid more, it's understandable that that family would choose to have the men work. But the effect that has is it keeps that cycle rolling where now women are working less and when they are working, getting paid less. So it kind of attributes itself to this to this issue, this gap going forward. So that can have an effect on the social stratification that women and men are placed in. All right, so moving on to race. So of course, racism consists of both prejudice and discrimination based in social perceptions of observable differences between people. Uh, it can take the form of social action, practices, beliefs, even political systems where races are seen as more worthy than other races which of course is just god-awful and terrible, but this is something that happens. So something like overt racism, racism will feed directly into a stratification system and have an obvious effect on social status. But even more covert racism is socially hidden and less easily detectable, but it still feeds into the stratification systems as a variable affecting income, education opportunities, and even housing. So both the overt and covert racism uh, contributes to the structural inequality that people face and will place us in different social groups and social stratification. Now, ethnicity, ethnic prejudice and discrimination actually operates very similar as, as racial prejudice and discrimination in our society. And, but in fact, actually only recently in the research have these two things been separated at all. Usually they were seen as identical or so closely related that it doesn't really matter. But with more scientific development in genetics and the Human Genome Project as fields of study, a lot of scholars now recognize that race is socially defined by these biological characteristics that can be observed, while ethnicity is based on culturally learned behavior. So if you look at culturally learned behavior, and especially people who have immigrated here from other places, if they are seen as different or seen as a risk, they are less likely to uh, have higher income. They are less likely to have um, educational opportunities here. All the same things that racism has an effect on, but a totally different way of looking at it. So, but again, this can feed into this kind of social stratification and have a big effect on people's lives, not only in the short term, but in the long term. All right, so why am I talking about this with a Guy Ritchie movie, with a fun, cool movie about the London Underground? Well, as you will see when we talk about the movie, when Diego and when, when Diego comes back, there's a lot of different power structures here going on. There are immigrants coming into the picture, which actually have more power, which is, of course, very different from the general social stratification. But again, as I mentioned, this is a subculture, so it has different rules. And you have lots of mobility depending on who dies or who goes to the cops or who does the wrong thing and who does the right thing. But they, these people are all in within this subculture in social 
stratified areas. Like you have the Wild Bunch who are definitely near the bottom. And then you have, you know, Mark Strong's character who, you know, rules over them, but then is still subject to the whims of Tom Wilkinson's character. But Tom Wilkinson's character is still subject to the whims of these Russian mobsters who have come into town. So all these things, and granted, it's not race or ethnicity, but a lot of it has to do with the economic aspect and the success aspect and the the acquired skills aspect. But these people are all still subject to these whims as well. So I think it does really apply. All right. So that's it for the psychology section. When we come back, uh, Diego Crespo will be here as well. And we will talk about rock and roll. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. All right, so we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So uh, we always like to talk about our history with these movies. Mine will be relatively short uh, because this is the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, this was something that, okay. So I realized why I hadn't seen it. Um, because I've seen every Guy Ritchie movie, I think, except this one. And I realized it was because I saw Revolver and got so angry that I wasted my time watching that stupid fucking movie that this movie came out and I was like, fuck Guy Ritchie. I'm not watching this. But then of course, by the time his next movie came out, I was like, oh, that's fine. I'll watch that. And I've kind of, you know, filled in the blanks and just never went back. And watched rock and roll. And I had a couple people uh, very close to me who were like, no, no, you have to watch this. So I figured, you know, we're doing a Guy Ritchie movie uh, for a new release. This is the perfect excuse for me to finally watch this movie. So that's my very short history with rock and roll. What about you, Diego? Uh, this, I think it's actually my first Guy Ritchie movie. Oh, really? I saw, yeah. Oh, okay. That's when I was getting really into like, oh, YouTube videos are cool. Not just funny cat videos. Oh, what? There's like... <laughs> There's movie reviews on YouTube. I can watch like old Roger Ebert reviews online. <laughs> and so like I just scoured stuff there. And then I saw uh, – I forget who it was, but someone reviewed Rock and Rolla. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. And then I saw the trailer and I was like, whoa, that looks cool. And I was like really big. Obviously, you're in the high school film. You're really big on Tarantino. I still sure. am, but for different reasons, obviously. Right. And so I was like, oh, Pulp Fiction, but British. And so I, I <laughs> watched bit. it. <laughs> yeah, I watched it. I'm like, oh, that's exactly what it is. And that was super fun. And then I, I – got older and i was like hey i want to go back and watch this because i really liked that when i was younger and then i i think it's my favorite guy Ritchie film I haven't watched it like at least once a year now uh <laughs> i think that qualifies yeah <laughs> yeah just it, it's i don't know I, I it gets the the tarantino ripoff kind of um like it gets a bad rap for on the surface kind of being like that but i think the well we'll talk about as the theme of the film, the the use of like order in these criminal organizations and in these people's lives is really separates it from that and how right. the movie goes about uh maybe not economic decay, but like social decay and like a contemporary crime setting mm-hmm. in uh in England. Yeah. It, it's really fascinating stuff Guy Ritchie's doing here. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie I kind of walked into like, okay, uh, I hope this is good. I hope I didn't just screw myself into watching a shitty movie for my podcast. Um, but I really liked it. Like, it, it's not my favorite Guy Ritchie. I don't think anything will ever surpass Snatch for me because I think if this movie is just as good as Snatch, 
but minus the amazing Brad Pitt performance in Snatch. I don't think it has one of those just phenomenal performances that I'm always going to remember, but I really like this. I really enjoyed my time with it. So it was a really, it was a really nice surprise. The only thing that upset me about this movie is uh, that there's no fucking sequel as promised at the end of the goddamn <laughs> credits. And now I feel the pain of everyone who actually saw rock and roll and liked it, you know, in, you know, whatever it was like nine years ago now. And it's like, Oh man, I want to see more of this. I want to see the real rock and roll. I want to see, Toby Kebbell go into this this kind of new this his character going into this new phase of his life but other than that like I really enjoyed my time with it and I was you know of course there are weak points in this movie and we'll kind of talk about it because there's weak points in every movie I'm one of those people who you'll never you'll never catch me saying blah 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 is a perfect movie because that's just like a thing I don't do like other people do and that's fine uh but I, I always feel like there's a little bit of room for improvement but this was a really really good time I had a good time with it yeah, um, I too am very upset that there's been no sequel. And I've pretty much liked, I think, every Guy Ritchie movie that's come out since then, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't seen Revolver. I, I still haven't seen it. And I feel like... Don't. Yeah, <laughs> don't the, ruin your the, life. The unanimous God. opinion is like, yeah, don't. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Man From U.N.C.L.E., I even like Man From U.N.C.L.E., all right. Uh, it's good. Looking, it's fine. Yeah, it's yeah. an enjoyable movie. I don't think it's – I think there's a reason it didn't grab the cultural consciousness. Like, it's not a movie like that. Um, but it's it's good. It's it's better than the majority of movies that come out. You know, there are many worse choices than The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, why there hasn't been a rock and roller trilogy as promised. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I think before we get into the rest of the movie and – I don't like hijack your show or anything. Uh, <laughs> Guy, Guy Ritchie has said like that. Oh yeah. Like we're good to go. It's just when it's going to happen. Just uh, as long as like Warner brothers keeps tossing these big movies at me. Like, I don't know if I'm going to go back right. and do it yet. It's so also like, got to be really hard with this cast. I mean, cause a lot of this cast has done big, big things since rock and roll. I mean, you're talking about, you know, uh, Tom Hardy, Idris Elba, like Mark strong, like kind of moving into the, you know, the Kingsman movies, like they're doing. So like, I'm sure organizing the schedules, of all these people would be a huge challenge. So I could, and even Toby Kebbell, even though a lot of his movies have been kind of critically derided, he's working a lot. Like, so he's kind of everywhere at once. So I could see it being, you know, a difficult pull to grab all these people one more time. Oh yeah, totally. And Toby Kebbell's so good in this movie. I think, I think it's his best performance ever. Like, I don't think there's a better Toby Kebbell performance in this. It's fantastic. Uh, but yeah. we will, we will get to that. But let's uh, let's start out with the direction. Let's start out with Guy Ritchie. So there's a bunch of things I noticed because Guy Ritchie is not a director. Subtle is not a word I would choose to describe <laughs> Guy Ritchie's direction style. There are some directors who like they don't want to be noticed and you don't want to notice the camera. And he is definitely not one of those people. Like he is one of those like there's a lot of quick cuts. There's a lot of interesting editing going on. There are things to notice. Um, but one of the things because I knew nothing about this movie going in. Didn't know what it was about other than it was like kind of a Guy Ritchie underworld movie. And that was it. So I love the opening of this movie where you're you're zooming in on what you don't really know is Toby Kebbell's character. And you see a gun in his back pocket um, or in the in tucked into his into his pants. And then the, the camera kind of pans and you see him, you know, using drugs and the the uh, the gun is just a lighter. And I love that it like totally plays with the audience's expectations from the very beginning because it's a Guy Ritchie, Guy Ritchie movie. You just expect, oh, this is a hardened criminal and this is this is the character who we're going to follow for the entire movie. And he, we kind of follow him. 
but not really because there's a bunch of different plot lines that all intersect. So I love that he kind of played with the audience expectations. I think this is also the first time I noticed Mark Strong. Obviously, Mark Strong mm. has been acting for a while. Right. But even from the, the opening scene, he has like this. Oh, he's so good. This, this warmth to him. Like he's yeah. a hardcore like gangster, obviously, but he's he's got a lot of humanity, something that's not present in um, uh, Toby Kibble's character's life, as mm-hmm. you see through the rest of the movie. Obviously, he's like a huge washed up junkie and everything. And the way uh, Richie follows that character in particular it feels different, even though the other characters are, are more like uh, they're hang loose, kind of, especially right. the, uh, the wild bunch. <laughs> yes. Uh, those guys are awesome. <laughs> yes. And they, they've <laughs> all like escalated in stature, except for maybe Gerard Butler, but I think that's just because he can't find some work outside of big action movies anymore. Yeah, he keeps doing like these, you know, what is it? Uh, London is falling and like just like yeah. stop. <laughs> do do literally anything else and your career will be in a better place. Yeah, he's so good. So, I mean, I'm sure it'll turn around eventually for him too. Um, but the way he uh, – the movie follows Mark Strong's character in particular, like mm-hmm. I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But the camera just feels softer on him. Or yes. At the very least, he feels softer, even when he's like slapping people with the famous Archie slap. Yes. I think there's, if anything, there's like, there's just a lot less movement from the camera in those scenes. Like he's, I think Guy Ritchie is very comfortable with Mark Strong in the center of his frame. And he's just like, I'm just going to let this, let this occur organically instead of like swinging the camera on a swivel and like kind of distracting the audience. He knows, and Mark Strong does have this this ability to play this character who on one hand is very warm and oddly caring, but on the other hand, will if he is, if someone wrongs him, he will turn on a dime. So you get this sense of danger to that, to those moments as well. And you know, at any moment things could go really wrong for someone else uh, on the screen. That kind of leads me to Tom Wilkinson, who mm-hmm. is also very good. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but right. he, he plays Toby Kebbell's father. And and what a different role for Tom Wilkinson. Tom Wilkinson, it's, I mean, he's done, of course, villains before. And I think, was he in one of the Nolan Batman movies? Right? Yeah, he was in, in Batman Begins, one, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But usually he plays this kind of warm, comforting father or grandfather figure. So to see him, you know, with this kind of different accent and be so vicious, it's like it's a little – it takes a little bit of getting used to because that's not who he usually plays. Yeah, and I like how catty he is. Like even yes. though he's like <laughs> – like any of these peop- these roles, if they, they don't have the right direction or writing or in particular here, the cast, they become very – very uh hollow yes if, if the the right people aren't chosen to do the right things for these characters and yeah. uh that character in particular it's like oh yeah aging cranky old gangster <laughs> like you've seen that a bunch of times but he makes it fun like yeah. obviously he's like a, a bag of shit but he makes it fun yeah i totally agree I, I think the one thing i was worried about going into this movie is so there is a complaint out there with early guy Ritchie movies that especially between Lockstock and snatch that they're essentially the same movie they look very similar there's a very similar really complicated plot you just kind of add uh the brad pitt bits in there and that's what sets snatch apart and i think that's kind of true but i like that this movie did not feel like that Like, yes, there are definitely some stylistic choices that Guy Ritchie will probably always use in his work, but this felt like it was in a different place. It felt a little bit more grounded. Like, this actually felt like London instead of Guy Ritchie's London, and I like that you get that. And a lot of our characters are these kind of ground or floor-level criminals, so you get that feeling that it's not – like, everything is not 
you know, above, you know, above the ground level. Like we actually feel like we are there, especially with, as you mentioned, the wild bunch. Yeah. The, the focus on, uh, the ground level people here, I mean, you, you get, you kind of get to see every aspect of, uh, the criminal enterprise in this world and Guy Ritchie's crime world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it's such a, a hard thing to do to do an ensemble piece like this. Yes. Not just like grab a whole bunch of characters from the same corner of the world, but a bunch of different characters from like every level of the world you're trying to showcase. Right. You got the, the high rollers, uh, Yuri, the big Russian guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously Tom Wilkinson and then the wild bunch and, uh, Johnny Quid and everyone down there, like it, it hits everything he clearly wants to explore. You know, like they're not just fun characters. They're they're showing us their maybe not like introspective struggles, all of them, but they're they're all exploring something that adds up to the bigger picture. So when all these things start intersecting, you really feel like the movie and the the purpose behind it has come together. Yeah. I think the other thing that stuck out to me is there's one particular moment in this movie that I assume is a directed moment. It could have been uh, Tandy Newton just kind of going off on her own, doing her own thing. But there's a moment where um, she is – I think she's like – she's talking to uh, Gerard Butler's character. And just for a moment, she touches his hand and just lets it linger in this like really soft, subtle moment that gets across – her interest and and kind of tying him to her and it it's something that doesn't re- it almost doesn't fit in a guy Ritchie movie because it's such a subtle little moment and there's no quick cut to it there's no like slow motion there's no focus um but i like that we have these little character moments that are kind of directed into the film like you because because in a movie where there's such a convoluted plot you have to get things across really quickly and not just in in a character like giving in a monologue over the top of the film. And I like that we have those little moments directed by Guy Ritchie here. Yeah. It, that's really just so remarkable to me that there's so many characters. And yeah. I don't know if this, the, the movie with the most characters or actors that he's directed. I, it's gotta be close. I mean, yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I, I think it also, that all these people have gone on to do bigger things too that makes it feel like wow all these people yes that's a lot but um (laughs) yeah as the as the cast went on screen like in the opening credits i started texting people like angrily like why didn't you tell me (laughs) like like idris elba and tom hardy in a movie why was i not informed like (laughs) how dare you you know me better than this this is like made for me but yeah you're right like it is it is a big cast but it's also a cast where they're like there's no there's no weak links in the film as far as portrayals, but there's also no weak links as far as like if you look back, you know, 10 years later at what these people have done, you know, like sure, Gerard Butler hasn't done much more, but he was kind of at this point, he was the draw out of out of all of these actors. So everyone else has really stepped up since Rock and Rolla. Yeah. And even a uh, Sandy Newton, who maybe hasn't been in a lot of big movies, but like, Westworld now. Yep. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's That's so cool. Yeah, I, I think if anything, the only weak link as far as the direction, there are moments where he gets a little too fancy and things go on a little too long. Like one of my favorite sequences is uh, the um, the moment where Toby Kebbell's character is fighting with the bouncer. Um, and I think that really works, but there's so much there's so much intercutting going on with things going on elsewhere um, that after a while, you're kind of like, OK, can we just 
focus here? Can we get back to what's what's happening? Like visually, it's really appealing, but narratively, I think there are moments where Guy Ritchie, and I think he does this in every one of his movies, where he goes just a little bit too far for the cool moment and not for the the real moment. Yeah, I, I, there I think I think it, it works just because that's what the Wild Bunch is like. They're True. they're the the quote unquote cool, and I, I would say they're cooler than like a lot of the other characters in the movie who might think they're kind of the shit, but maybe are not the shit. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and in particular, I, I really like um, Tom Hardy in this movie. Yes. And Bob. Yes. And the, I mean, we're, we could talk just full on spoilers for everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Like uh, the little dancing that he, he has with uh, <laughs> Gerard Butler. Oh, that's like, amazing. <laughs> and that, that uh, him being gay is not the butt of a joke. Like it's, it shouldn't be even like, something worth worrying about but you know right. often you see those kind of movies especially ones with like such broad like machismo right like, no, like it's no big deal like when gerard butler's character is the only one that figures out like he's gay right and then uh, everyone else is like yeah well. yeah we know yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's actually the perfect transition to move into the acting because that's something i noticed as i was watching this movie like you know poor gerard butler uh because <laughs> i'm gonna talk a tiny bit of shit about his performance here because <laughs> Because, I mean, he's in that, that scene you're talking about where he's talking to Tom Hardy and Tom Hardy is essentially coming out to him in this moment. Like, you could just tell, like, even then, like, wow, Tom Hardy, this guy has real fucking talent. Like, in a movie like this that doesn't necessarily demand this really honest moment, like, you feel his struggle in that moment. You feel his pain. You feel his awkwardness as this kind of continues and gets worse and worse for him. And he's so amazing in that sequence and really in the whole movie. Whereas, you know, Gerard Butler, he's fine in there, but you can definitely tell the difference in quality as far as the acting in that scene in particular. But I think Tom Hardy is probably the standout in this movie as far as just a pure acting performance. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, I, I will totally go to bat for Gerard Butler, too, because he, he deserves better. Yeah, oh, I agree. Yes. Yeah, so much more. Um, yeah, I mean, he's not a garbage actor, but he's just not, he's not on Tom Hardy's level, which, I mean, let's be honest, 95% of actors aren't. Yeah, and uh, was this like his first big breakout role? I mean... I think so. Yeah. It's got to be close, because, I mean, this was 10 years ago. Nobody knew who Tom Hardy was 10 years ago. Yeah, this is the same year Dark Knight came out, so then four years later, he's chewing up scenery in Dark Knight Rises. I mean, that's a, that's a big leap. Yeah, and... um. Later that year, Bronson came out. So in terms of like, you know, ah, there we uh, go. these movies yeah. that people know now, like this was really his start, you know, and then Inception was two years later, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, and so on and so on and so on. And he's had quite a quite a career since then. But this really was. But you would never know. I mean, sometimes you go back and you look at people's first breakout performances and you're like, OK, I can see the talent there, but he's not quite there yet. I don't think that's the case here. Like he's there at this moment. Yeah, I, I think yeah, all these people come to play like in a really big way. Uh, right. Fanny Newton, I will always continue to praise her because she just radiates like elegance, but yes. also uh, she can be kind of ferocious. Yeah, that danger too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think she shares that with how we talked about Mark Strong. That like there is this warmth and this and this attraction, but there's also this. But don't cross her. <laughs> yeah, that oh, that's really impressive. Not not a lot of people can can do it as well as these two can. 
Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, Jeremy Piven and Ludacris have minor supporting it's so roles. So random. That's it's the thing. The I was most like, random thing. This ever. was back when Ludacris was still calling himself Chris Bridges in movies because he wanted to be a serious actor. I guess. Like, this yeah. is, I was like, what is happening right here? I mean, it's entertaining, but it was another Jeremy Piven role where you're like, oh yeah, this is this is a Jeremy Piven role. Like, almost no. This is like made for him, you know. And moving on from that, and Entourage, like he's playing the kind of you know smarmy agent, and he plays that well. Uh, but I don't think terribly memorably in this movie. Like, it seems like those roles, like you could put almost anyone there. Uh, but you bring, we brought up this like big cast, and it's something that maybe I think uh, Guy Ritchie doesn't get credit for because I think anytime you work with these ensemble casts and most of his movies, especially his underworld movies do have these big casts, but he manages not only to balance the the pacing of the movie, but also get these really good performances from 10 or so actors. And that's not, that's not nothing. Not every director can do that. I think there's a big difference between directing a movie that has three main characters and a movie that has 12, you know? And I think the, the degree of difficulty definitely goes up as you add more pieces. Yeah, and this one has so many pieces. Like yes. <laughs> it's like it's like cooking, you know, like yeah. you get all the ingredients just right. And I think this is my favorite guy Richie meal. Yeah, there you go. Nice. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, so let's move to the to the writing section. So you mentioned uh, we both kind of mentioned this sequence with Tom Hardy coming out. And this is the moment in the movie where I was like, oh no, this is gonna get bad. Uh, I'm going to be really uncomfortable. Like as a queer person, this is going to be bad for me uh, because the way the scene starts out is he comes out and Gerard Butler freaks out, like starts screaming and yelling and like walks out of the car. And I'm like, oh, God, being gay is going to be the worst thing in the world. It's he's going to be he's become the butt of everyone's joke. Like, I don't like where this is headed. But I was really impressed with how this movie handled it, because, yes, I think especially in this hyper masculine world, if you told someone that. That probably would be the original reaction, but I love that very quickly, not only with Gerard Butler's character, that gets fixed, but there is a scene to me that's one of my favorite moments of the movie where Gerard Butler and Idris Elba's characters are talking, and Idris Elba has some line, and it's something to the to the extent of, you know, basically, I don't care who he has sex with. If I could be half of the human being that Handsome Bob is. There's something about Bob that I don't think you know. What's that, then? But he's a puff. Who the fuck did you know that? Come on, everyone knows he's a flamer. You're the only one that doesn't. No, he likes the boys. It's sausage and beans all day long, mate. What the fuck are you talking about? Did he make a pass at you? Yes, he fucking did. So what's the problem, eh? It was supposed to be his last night. You took care of him. That's what friends do for one another. Well done. I'm not gay. Mr. One-Two, I think there is something you should know about our Bob. Who do you think looked after your mum before she died when you was doing a two-stretch? Hey? Because it wasn't me, and I'm your best fucking pal. No, it was Bob. Bob was around there six times a week without fail, making sure she was looked after. You tore your mum's heart out when you went away, and Bob did his best to put it back. i tell you something, Mr. One-Two. If I could be half the human that Bob is at the price of being a puff, I'll think about it. Not for too long, but I'd have to pause, you know? And it was like, what a nice little moment that I did not expect in a crime caper Guy Ritchie movie. Like, very open-hearted, very kind, very empathetic. And I was, I was like, genuinely floored by this. Like, I was sitting at, at home on my couch just kind of like, okay, this is 
this got way better than I expected. Hey, I, I maybe I'd even go as far to say as this is mo the Guy Ritchie's most like empathetic movie. I think so. Yeah, I think there is a certain. I mean, this is a strong word, but there is a certain sadism in his work, like where people who do bad things get their comeuppance, and even some people who don't get their comeuppance, and it's violent, and it's rough, and it's raw, and that certainly has its place in these underworld type of movies, but this is the first one I feel like I've seen of his, it's like, it's it's genuinely caring, and you can see the Wild Bunch, like, why they give a shit about one another, and it's done very quickly, it's not like they spend a lot of time, like, here's the history of these people, and how they've worked together, it's just like, we're thrown in in the middle, and yet we feel that camaraderie. Yeah, it's uh, if you look at like one of his uh, or Guy Ritchie's producing partners on occasion, uh, Matthew Vaughn, mm-hmm. he gets a lot of flack for being maybe too cynical at times. Yes, or maybe not. Maybe no. Like he he can be a little nihilistic <laughs> and and mean spirited. And as I think I turned a lot of people off to movies like Kick Ass and Kingsman, and I get that entirely. But rock and roll is different. The Guy Ritchie Guy Ritchie's different. He he's more open, I think, and. I, I have no basis for this, but I get the feeling that Matthew Vaughn might not be as open. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, think if you look at even his movies that are relatively well received, like like Kingsman, there's definitely a certain viciousness to that movie, especially near the end of the film. Like it can and it can turn some people off. Um, and I think you might have been able to say that about Guy Ritchie pre 2008 um, with, you know, with movies like Snatch. But this is you're right. This is different. This is this is a kinder, gentler uh, Guy Ritchie movie, <laughs> strangely, even though, you know, people are still, you know, being fed to sea animals and <laughs> being drowned alive. I mean, it's, uh, it's, there's definitely some rough moments, but you can tell, like, but even the rough moments, aside from Tom Wilkinson's character, when bad things happen to people, there's a reason. It's not just to have bad things happen. It's, it's for a purpose, which I actually appreciate because I have no problem with violence in movies, but I tend to have a problem with movies that are violent just for violence sake. I completely agree. Like, uh, I won't, I won't get too much into it, but I, I watched life recently. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, wait, is that the, uh, the, the science fiction movie? Yeah. 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 It's not great. Yeah. We, we covered it on the show. It's not great. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I hated it. <laughs> I remember and, <laughs> seeing that reaction from you on Twitter be like, wow, that is – that's probably the strongest reaction that movie has gotten out of anyone, positive or negative. <laughs> yeah, probably. But I, yeah, I really hated that movie and because I felt the same way. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is like shock. Like, there's one kill in particular that's like, whoa, this is, this is gnarly. This is, this is a bit much. But right. oddly enough, the only move, the moment the movie actually like had me like fully like wrapped around its finger – then after that, I was like, oh, okay, you're just going to be cynical and you're just right. going to do – We're just going to be stuff. ugly for 120 minutes. Like, okay. Yeah, and I was like, I, I, I'm not about that. You know, right. I, I'm the guy that likes Alien 3, so if your movie like <laughs> – Likes? Off, I think, think that, is a, uh, that is an underestimation of your love for Alien 3. I oh, think. totally. Totally true. Um, <laughs> if we ever do that on the show, I will invite you on because oh, there's that. no one else. Like how could <laughs> I? <laughs> Yeah, the point is, if your movie's too cynical for me, you, you got a problem. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the best things about the writing of this movie is I think it doesn't hold your hand. Um, 
this this plot is confusing and i think i think i got you know probably 90% of it and there's still some things to fill in that will come on rewatch but a lot of guy ritchie's movies are convoluted but they take the time in the last act like let me explain everything that just happened for the idiots in the audience we'll have a voiceover and we'll have jason statham explain why this happened and who it happened to and this movie doesn't do that it expects you to catch up um and and i think and i had read some complaints i kind of read some reviews after i watched the movie because i didn't want it to be kind of sullied i didn't want my experience of watching it to be sullied by you know roger ebert's opinion or you know renee rodriguez's opinion whoever you fill in the blank um and the the complaint was like i really enjoyed this this is really cool but it doesn't make any sense and i think that's false i think it does make sense i think but i think it takes a bit of work on the on the audience's part. It's not a movie that's just going to inform you of everything that's going on because and I think that's good because these characters and we'll talk about this when we get to the theme are at different levels of power and they have different amounts of information and we are mixed in there. We're somewhere in the middle. We don't get every bit of information, but we're expected to operate in a way as if we have that info. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think it comes down to just the type of, of convoluted that that this is it broadly because uh guy Ritchie really likes ensemble pieces clearly like for the most yes. part his, his movies are ensembles even the sherlock holmes movies have like 10 people starring in right them, you know? <laughs> so true yeah um and and for good reason i think he likes to explore a lot of uh facets of a certain world or a type of person and to do that he, he likes to use a lot of people and really mm-hmm. quick cuts and edits and um and so i think well, people toss the word convoluted to him a lot, and I, I think that's an appropriate word. Um, I think a lot of people use it as a negative, and right. that is not inherently the case for, like, any movie, you know? Like, it's how it, what, it's what the purpose is behind it, and whether or not you agree with how it's used is where the discussion should come in. And right. And and I think he does a particularly clever job here because what we don't realize until really, I would say the last 20 minutes of the movie, that the main mystery of this, the main plot of this is who is the rat uh, within the, within the wild punch, like who is, who is ratting people out. And it's, that plot is, is like mentioned so casually, like it's just while everybody's out, like kind of playing cards and hanging out, like, well, this is fucked up anyway. That sucks, but let's move on. And they have this whole setup in the beginning about this this land grab and this this econ- economic uh, plan that's going on. So you're so focused on that and you're so focused on the Russian and everything that's going on there that I think on a first view, you forget to think about who could possibly be turning in all these people uh, because you are thrown in right in the middle, which is the same place that they're in. They can't waste time worrying about this because they've got to make their money. They have jobs to do. They have friends. They have family. They got to get to work. Uh, and then you realize as the movie ends, like, oh, shit, I should have been paying attention to clues here. And I totally wasn't because I was just along for the ride. Yeah. And that that is no easy feat to do with uh, any mystery movie. Because, right. yeah, essentially it is – this movie's a lot of things, but it's also a mystery, which mm-hmm. is just wonderful to me. I love mystery movies. Um, and it might be one of the few movies about like, I guess in the sense blue collar workers. Yeah. You know, I, I, Chris Pratt had that comment recently about blue collar <laughs> uh, people not getting represented in movies. And there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, yes. There's... I, 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 <laughs> oh, there's uh, not I'll... just a simple answer for that. It's just not yes or no. It's yeah, not... <laughs> no, absolutely. But, uh, if we're going to take like the simplest form of that, that statement, I think rock and roll is one that at least addresses the the blue collar people in in London specifically. Yeah. Uh, 
not everyday people, obviously. Right. One, they, they don't exist, and two, they're criminals. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, th- I think they could be life, described you know? within the criminal world. Like, this is a subculture. Within the criminal world, the people we are mainly following, the Wild Bunch in this case, they are the blue-collar workers. They are the people who are, you know... Uh, who have to follow the rules of these people above them. We're not following, like we don't follow the story of like how the Russian came over and, you know, is in his whole plan and his, you know, we get a little bit about his like good luck charm and all that and his, his love interest, but we don't get his background. We get the background of the people on the ground level. Yeah. I think that really separates this from like a lot of other sort of crime dramas that you don't, I think a lot of them try maybe even to do it, like look at the groundwork right. uh, and the people. But I think too many of them get caught up in the stylization of it. And like, yeah, Guy Ritchie's definitely got a style. Yeah, I was going to say, who would think we'd be talking about a movie and feel like this is more real and not as stylistic and we're talking about Guy Ritchie? Like, <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> first time for everything. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so true. Like he's, the style's still all there, but he's he's really using it, I think, better than a lot of his other movies. Uh to just really get to the meat and potatoes of this world and, and what it means to these people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think you've hit on why this movie took me by surprise and it was not what I expected and much better than I expected is that, you know, for once, I think, I think even in snatch, which I love, there's not, there's not a lot of characters you give a shit about. It's not like, Oh God, that's so terrible. This is happening. It's more like this is entertaining. Like, let's see how this turns out. Whereas, like, if something if something bad is about to happen, um, to say Handsome Bob or Idris Elba's character or Gerard Butler's character, you're genuinely worried. Like, there's a scene later in the movie uh, where he's essentially tied to a bed by these uh, by these Russian bodyguards, and we don't really know what's going to happen. It looks like something definitely uh, definitely untoward is about to happen, and you're genuinely kind of worried for him. Like, it's a funny moment when Mark Strong comes in and kind of kind of fucks with him in that moment but it, at that at that juncture in the movie you do care about that character a whole lot which is different from most guy Ritchie films yeah i think it's well i i don't know um, i definitely care about these characters the most out of any guy Ritchie creations this is my favorite band of misfits like yeah by far uh it's like the other ones he's like all right let's show you all this stuff but it doesn't really matter what happens to all these people all these people are are kind of garbage maybe not all right. of them but the, let's just watch their their uh their crazy criminal adventures unfold yeah and then here it feels more like he wants you to to feel better about these people yeah i mean even a character who in the beginning of the movie seems like kind of kind of not a great person to hang out with toby kebbell's character by the end you understand why he is the way he is and how how life has affected him. So you still do care about him near the end. So when he's shot and kind of bleeding out near the end of the movie, you're left with this feeling of kind of like, I want him to survive. And of course, you know, he does because they're trying to set up for a sequel and thank goodness for that, because that would have been a really rough way to end the movie. If our, if our, you know, real rock and roller had died uh, at the end of the film, it would have been a tough watch, but it also kind of would have fit the movie too. I would have understood why they went that direction, but you do actually care about him. Again, credit to Toby Kebbell for being able to play oh, such a like a distinct character. He's <laughs> he's a he's a junkie, but he's like he, he's like a rambling junkie. But he's the a same philosophical time, junkie. It's... <laughs> yeah, and if you ever been in L.A., like there's a lot of people that just kind of or Venice Beach in particular. There's a lot of people that just go around rambling, right? And such, and it, it's very sad. 
but in here it's okay because it's not real and i don't have to think about too much real life stuff <laughs> right uh, exactly it, it's no there is a sadness to him too but at the same time he's saying like really interesting shit it's right. not entirely all rambly right it, it is because he's high but he's he's got a lot on his mind and you know he can be better than that just yeah and we and we find out and we find out it's connected to how he was raised like you can see why he has all this insight because of the kind of trauma that he's gone through as a young child like it all kind of fits and even if the flashbacks seem a little heavy-handed and they are i mean i think it's you know we get some very specific moments that you can tell why they're chosen but i think it says something about toby kebbell's character and is actually important to the narrative and getting the audience on his side by the end of the film yeah, no, no easy feat, but yeah. Guy Ritchie pulls it off with flying colors. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, uh, so let's talk about the production value. So, you know, I wouldn't say this is an action-driven movie, but I think the few action sequences really work. Uh, I mean, we'll talk more about the uh, the chase scene uh, in, in favorite scenes because that's definitely one of mine. But even that scene I was talking about earlier, that kind of cutting back and forth in the, the kind of bouncer fight, like that stuff feels visceral and really, really works. And you could see, of course, now that we've seen more movies from Guy Ritchie since this, you can see that his direction of action is is pretty, pretty top notch. Like he really he knows what he's doing there and you can tell he's having a good time with it. Yeah, it's like one of those infectiously fun sort of uh, deals. Like you can tell when someone's having fun making a movie Mm -hmm. often, unless they're like just awesome actors and completely like lie through their teeth and like I hated it, right? You know. Um, But here it's it's different. Guy Ritchie, I think he has a good way of working with the cast that comes across really well too, and he knows how to. This is going to sound like a stupid thing, but he just knows how to where to put the camera. Yeah. No, I mean, and not every director does. Yeah, like, like you would think that would be basic, but <laughs> oh, totally. Like, like I don't, I don't know how many blockbusters in 2016 alone. You're like, why is this happening? Right. This way? Well, why am I seeing it here? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. It, he does a good job of putting you in the action as the viewer and and like kind of feeling those moments. Uh, the other thing that stood out to me is the music. I think the music is just about perfect. Like it's. You know, it's it's not too little. It's not too much. It fits the it fits the time, depending on whether we're talking about flashbacks or whether we're talking about the current moments in the film. Like, I really enjoyed it. And it's something that he really improved upon in Revolver, because in Revolver, it felt like and I know you haven't seen this, but there's a lot of musical choices that don't make a lot of sense, uh, because at that point he was married to Madonna so he could use her music. And it felt like he was using that just because no one else could. Uh, Uh Whereas the music choices here actually make sense. This is not entirely a tangent, but I guess the recent headline rumor thing is that Guy Ritchie wants to direct uh, a Suicide Squad movie. And you know what? Just the more I think about it, if these movies are still getting made in like however many years. Might be perfect. <laughs> yeah, might, that might be the guy to, to, to fix this thing. Yeah, that might work. And I, I think they're still going to be made because even, you know, movies like Batman versus Superman and uh, Suicide Squad that were kind of critically derided, I mean, still made a boatload of cash. So, you know, why stop now? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there'll they be at least like, a couple more. Yeah, they got like five Transformers movies or whatever. So right, exactly. <laughs> the perfect example that like <laughs> after the first Transformers movie, like it seems like no one I know liked those movies or would admit to watching them and yet <laughs> they all make a billion dollars so you know <laughs> somebody's lying yeah i mean it's one of those things i see this online all the time like you know how does michael bay still have a career how how do these dc movies keep getting made and then just send a link to box office mojo 
Go take a look. That's why they're getting made because they're making money and it's a business. So until Transformers and, you know, DC Universe movies stop making money, we're going to get more. So get ready. <laughs> like, and I would love if Guy Ritchie helmed a Suicide Squad movie because I think I think I, I like David Ayer, but I think he's very self-serious. Uh, so uh, Suicide Squad seems like a terrible match. Uh, for his work, uh, whereas Guy Ritchie definitely has the ability to have tongue firmly planted in cheek for an action movie. And I think he would have a great time with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it all is going to come down to like how King Arthur does, maybe. Yeah. Or at the end of the day, if he is actually that interested in making it. Yeah, well, um, that's the other thing. Do you want to? Yeah. <laughs> People toss out like casting choices all the time. And it's like, well, do they do they want to, though? You know, right. Like, exactly. Idris, Idris Elba and Bond. He's like, I don't want to do it, though. So right. I'm like, all right, don't. don't Shut up, Idris. Just get to work. Go yeah, be Bond. <laughs> Please um, save but, that for me. Uh, back to uh, the, the action. Yeah, the, this one feels very visceral, but like it's not a it, it is very intense because like you mentioned before, we care about these people a lot. Um it's not – I feel like the action and stuff like Snatch is maybe more meat grinder. This is more mm. – uh, well, I don't know. Not, it's not that intense. But it's, right. it's just intense enough to be exciting. It's not ugly and it's not uh, mean-spirited. Yeah, and I, and I think what you're, what you're kind of commenting on is in Snatch, everything is – the violence is very clean. For lack of a better word, it's very fresh and it's cut in such a way. Like if you look at the the Brad Pitt uh, boxing sequences, like they're very quick and snappy and to the point. Whereas this, I mean, we have a car chase that ends with people not being able to run anymore because they're so tired. Like yeah. it's, it's very real and it's very funny, but not this laugh out loud funny moment where like, oh, my God, this is so ridiculous. Like I can't even I can't even enjoy this. But it's like, you know, eventually no one can run forever. So eventually you just kind of tire out. And, you know, and I love that you have that moment of Gerard Butler kind of taunting his the person who's chasing him. Like, come on, <laughs> keep going. Like and I, I love that little moment because it, it does feel a little bit more real than any of the action sequences in uh, in uh, Guy Ritchie's other films. Yeah, and uh, I also want to say I love the Invincible Russians. Oh, it's so great. Like, they're just – those are great henchmen. Like, those are Shane Black-level henchmen. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good comparison, actually. It, it would fit in uh, with with a Shane Black movie for sure, which is about the highest praise I can give any movie. So <laughs> – Yeah, you know what? This might be – this this is a – this feels like a Shane Black movie by way of Guy Ritchie because it yeah. can be dark and kind of cynical, but it's – there's a there's a warmth to it that – that wouldn't be present with their lessers that, that try to rip them off. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's move to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes from rock and roll? I would say just the ending because it feels like I love when movies nail their ending. Like some movies have good endings. Some movies have bad endings. So you're talking movies. about the Tom Wilkinson reveal or the, the no, moment the, with the Toby Kebbell, the moment with Toby Kebbell where okay. he actually, where he walks out of the, the clinic. Yes, that is and pretty great. I, when the movie nails its ending as well as something like Rock and Rolla or like The Thing, um, right? That becomes my favorite moment in the film because I feel like that that is the moment I'm always going to revisit. I feel like I've gone on a journey, and I feel like if for a franchise film or a movie that's setting up a, a longer gestating story, that oh, maybe even more exciting stuff is to come, right? And, and it, it did feel like yet, that at the end of the movie. It does feel like oh, we've just begun. 
which is a really nice feeling because I didn't know that this was planned to be a supposed trilogy going in. So I was like, okay, this was a lot of fun. And even like after, you know, Tom Wilkinson's moment at the end there, I was like, this was a, a lot of fun. And the movie could have ended there and I would have been perfectly happy. But that last minute of the movie is is a holy shit moment. It's like, oh, wow, we're really – Oh, this this could go a lot of interesting places because that character has shown himself worthy in the last 20 to 30 minutes of the movie of being in this world. And now he's going to go leave music and go full bore into the underworld. And that's exciting. It's so exciting. And there's nothing yet. <laughs> yeah. It kills. It's tragic. Yeah. I think the only scenes we haven't brought up uh, in passing that I really liked both have to do with uh, Tom Wilkinson's character. The scene with with him and uh, and Toby Kebbell's managers, I think, is really a genuinely fantastic moment in this movie where you you really I think it's the first time you really understand how terrifying he is. Like you get hints of it early in the movie but as he's just like kind of stalking through uh through the studio and kind of explaining to them what's going to happen if they don't obey him if they don't get this done for him is genuinely kind of scary for the audience and before that he's like this enjoyable evil presence and almost a little bit of a comedy of errors going on with him like you know getting robbed and losing the piece of art and this is the first moment where i was like Oh, oh, this is this is the big bad. This is someone we need to be actually concerned about. And the other moment for me is the reveal of him as him as the snitch. I think that stuff really works, too, because, again, we talked about, you know, we've stopped focusing on that because so much else is going on. And when that comes to pass, it all kind of comes together in a really satisfying way and actually makes sense. Yeah, again, not not an easy feat to pull off. Uh, I will say another favorite of mine is the elevator scene when they're going to uh, when Toby Kebbell and his manager are going to be taken out to get shot and put in the trunk of a car. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and he's walking his managers through what's going to happen, and like, oh, they're not going to shoot us here; they're going to shoot us over there because that'd be too much hard work. Yeah. And you could see it's just the quick cuts. You can see the the guards getting more anxious. Like, oh, right. yep, that's what we're going to do. What? Well, how does he? <laughs> how does he and, know that? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then uh, the quick cut action that happens, like, in 30 seconds, they, they take out the two guys, and then the two guys outside the elevator as well. And was, he's like, all right, hand me the gun. No, quickly, come on, hurry up. <laughs> Let's go now <laughs> would be good. Yeah, yeah, that scene does really work, and I think that's what I was, you know, kind of referencing of him kind of showing his worth in the in the end of this movie right before, you know, we get to the actual end where he decides to, after he gets clean, to go into this world. And I think – and it kind of came as a surprise, but it made sense given the flashbacks and the world he was surrounded with probably before he went into music that he would understand all this stuff. So it didn't – it was nice that it didn't feel contrived and it didn't feel like, oh, magically this guy knows how to use a gun and knows how everything works. Like it actually fit with his character. So I really like that too. Yeah, at the end of the day, this is what it, these characters come down to. They all – it's not a big thing that should be noted often, but they all – all their character decisions are derived from who they are. Yep. And that's that makes for some really fun storytelling because these are a weird bunch of people. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so now uh, that we're basically done talking about the movie, let's talk about the theme a little bit. So I gave you a little bit of a uh, a tough theme. Uh, sometimes people get off light on my show and I'm like, the theme is hope. Everybody knows what hope is. That's fine. Uh, and I gave you the theme and you're like, man, I'm going to have to do some research for this. So <laughs> and in watching the movie with that theme in mind, how do you think it played in or did it? Am I totally off base? No, I totally think it did. So you told me uh, social stratification. Mm-hmm. 
uh, with parentheses for me, thank you, because <laughs> I'm from California and we're all just surfing all the time. Uh, so in human terms, hierarchy, uh, order, and I think absolutely this this plays into the the movie because, like we mentioned before, it, it breaks down the um, I guess the criminal ecosystem, mm-hmm. if you will, in in this movie, uh, the higher ups, the middle management, and the bottom feeders. But I think the bottom feeders are the most interesting too, and how they they're just doing what everyone else tells them to. They all have their own like lives and aspirations and goals, and it's really interesting how the movie goes about that. Um, but absolutely, the movie is ultimately about that. So when it, when all these threads come together in the finale of the movie, without us even realizing through the mystery of who the rat is, mm-hmm. it feels like a legitimate revelation and not just like a plot twist for the sake of a plot twist. It feels cathartic. Yeah. Catharsis could be positive and negative. This is like a, a negative one because it's like, oh, the guy, the, the guy we're looking for has been the guy in charge. Right. So the blue collar workers, there's always this, uh, this great theme that goes on with, uh, uh, stuff like maybe you, I, I would, I would bring up heat again, but I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> I'll just keep talking about rock and roll. Um, upper management essentially ends up giving, uh, uh, the blue collar people the finger and mm-hmm. they have to do all the hard work, but they don't get the payoff. And then they get screwed over by that. So that's that. That is really uh, striking commentary for for a Guy Ritchie movie. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know what made me think of this originally is that like I think Tom Wilkinson's character even has a moment where he's talking about like I'm here to keep order. You know, like he says that <laughs> in essence in the movie. And I think what's interesting is the idea of social stratification is this is not just like it's not a it's not a stagnant thing. Like things can change, right? Like depending on, you know, and we could talk about amounts of privilege, like that's kind of the same idea of power and social stratification. And at the start of this movie, when we have this kind of opening about how Tom Wilkinson's character is kind of screwed over our main characters really easily, we at the beginning of this film think like, oh, this is the big dog. This is the guy in power. This is the guy we have to worry about. And I love that throughout the movie, even if we don't realize it until the end, there are people who have power over him. Um, so if you look at things from the bottom feeder perspective, this guy is the ultimate uh, and the person they have to respect or they'll die. But then you bring in the the kind of big time Russian uh, Russian criminal, and he definitely has power over Wilkinson's character. Like I think Mark Strong's character even says, like, you know, uh, you better you better get your stuff straight because this guy can take you out. Like this is not <laughs> this is not the the person you're used to dealing with. And then if you look at all this whole time he's been a rat because essentially, you know, he got caught by the cops doing something and he's in their pocket now. So given the social structure of England, uh, the cops have power over criminals if they catch them in the act. So now he is kind of forced and he's very smart and ends up giving away people that he feels have wronged him or didn't do the right thing or got too big of a head and it keeps him in power, but he's still being ruled over by someone else. So I think it's really interesting that the power structure is constantly changing. And by the end of the movie, of course it completely changes because Tom Wilkins character is murdered by Mark Strong. So now I think we assume Mark Strong's character is kind of at the top of the food chain, but he might still have to deal with like, you know, other people in power, like the the Russian gangsters in this movie, or some other version of them, if the movies go on to a second and third movie in the series. Uh, the uh, the social order and the the power structures, 
actually, while you were talking about it, I never thought about this, and it's a TV show, so I wouldn't have recommended it in the beginning anyways, but it's really similar to The Wire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a great comparison, yes. Yeah, obviously with more uh, more style, less uh, VHS-looking imagery. <laughs> yes. Uh, for, for purpose, obviously, just... um. Yeah, that that I, I never thought about that until you started talking about it. Yeah, and especially that show, as the seasons go on, you get more layers of power. Like, you know, at, at the beginning, it's kind of just the cops versus the criminals. And then they start laying in the politics and the, the upper levels of police enforcement. And there's a lot going on there that you don't. And I think that's the the danger of things like power in social structures is that we can't really see everything that's going on. All we can see is the things that are in our vision, whereas like most of what's going on and controlling us is way above our pay grade. Yeah, and in a way, that's there's a tragedy to that. Mm hmm. For, yeah. for all of these people, except for the Russians. Yeah, Russians. they're okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, so that's it for Rock and Rolla, a film I really enjoyed, a film that definitely took me by surprise. And uh, a little behind the scenes information, I gave Diego a choice. So we could either do Snatch or we could do Rock and Rolla, and you chose Rock and Rolla. So thank you for that. Uh, otherwise, who knows when I would have finally watched Rock and Rolla. Uh, <laughs> so that was really enjoyable for me. Uh, but the last thing to talk about is – how excited, if you are excited, about Guy Ritchie's newest movie, movie, King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword? You know what? I, I am excited because even if I don't love a Guy Ritchie movie, from what I've seen, remember, I haven't seen Revolver. Yes. Um, <laughs> he, he always directs the ever-living shit out of them. It's sort of yes. like my, my relationship to Gore Verbinski movies. Like, yeah. I don't love them all, but you know what? That guy can make a movie. I respect it, what you're doing, Like yeah, even if it, it doesn't work good. out. As, yeah, there's a cinematic nature to, to both those directors yes. uh, that is specific to them. And not every director needs to do that, but I sure like when they do. So. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, this is a movie. Okay, so when I first saw the first trailer, my first response is like, holy shit, that looks like a pile of garbage. That looks terrible. Um, and it was just like a teaser trailer. There wasn't much to it other than uh, other than our main character, like punching the air and having incredible abs, which is great. Which is great to watch, but I'm still kind of like, what the fuck are we doing here? And then I saw the extended trailer uh, with Jude Law practically eating scenery, and I can't fucking wait. Like, this looks like – I mean, I still believe that this is not going to be a good movie, but I also believe it's going to be a good movie that I have a fucking fantastic time with. Like, it's going to be, like, a lot of fun. I feel like the – tongue will be firmly in cheek i feel like it's a movie that if you're really in to arthurian legend you're probably not going to like much because you know he's going to take a lot of turns with this movie it's not going to be based on any kind of any kind of literature that's out there like this is that this is guy Ritchie's arthur this is not king arthur and the knights of the round table like this is going to be a lot of fun and hyper violent and a lot of big action sequences and i'm actually really excited for this and if you had asked me this three months ago this would not have been my answer yeah, it, it's uh, the way he does blockbusters are is unlike anyone else too. Like his his Sherlock Holmes movies, mm -hmm. they're they're very inspired by like old school steampunk. Yeah, and no one's done that before, at least not not with that budget. Right. And here it's it looks like he's mixing like Game of Thrones with Lord of the Rings and <laughs> yeah, it's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know how it's going to come together, but I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was uh, there's another podcast out there. If anyone's interested in more movie podcasts, it's a little bit of a bigger one called Linoleum Knife, uh, which is fucking fantastic. And one of one of the lines that he mentioned about a different movie is like, "There's nothing I admire more than a dramatic overreach. Like if you're going to go, go." 
Like if you're going to really have fun with a movie, let's go all the way and you might overshoot it and it might be terrible, but it might be a good time. So let's just go for it. Like no one's going to a Guy Ritchie movie to be moved to tears or to watch an Oscar nominated film. So let's just have a blast with it. And it looks like that is what's happening here. So I'm I'm super excited. Yeah. And you know what? Just uh, there's been no movie I've seen this year that kind of falls under that category. I thought Triple X three might kind of do that, and mm-hmm. in a sense, yeah. But I think it's legitimately well made, right? For the type of movie it's trying to be, uh, I, I would love to see whether or not it's good or bad. Like if it's a glorious disaster, just balls to the wall. Yeah, let's do and it. And if it, if it's good, then cool. Then it's good too. You know? Yeah, I totally agree. All right, um, so that's it for our show. So before you take off, why don't you tell people one more time, uh, either where to find your work or where to find you online. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at D E double G O waffles, uh, Diego waffles. It's a, it's an anagram of ego and Diego. Uh, so I started that before stranger things also just to be clear. <laughs> uh, you can find my podcast, the waffle press podcast on YouTube. We're going to go back on SoundCloud and iTunes soon. Just working out some things behind the scenes, exciting new stuff coming out this year that I cannot wait for. Uh, El Paisano online is the, the newspaper that I run in southern california for my college and it is awesome i'm exhausted all the time but it it has been one of the best experiences of my life i'm super proud of my staff and close friends uh that have helped me with that and of course audience is everywhere.net and lots of other things coming up so just follow me on twitter it'll all be there Alright everybody, thank you for listening to yet another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So the next time you hear the show, we will be doing a new release review of King Arthur, The Legend of the Sword, hopefully guest starring Hyro from the True Bromance Film Podcast. Now, if you want to help out the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. The best way is, of course, to keep listening and tell your friends about the show so we can grow our audience. You can also follow me on Twitter at PCK Study, and we're kind of all over social media under that name or Pop Culture Case Study. But if you really want to go the extra mile and help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash pop culture case study and there you can donate to the show on a per episode basis and get some cool rewards as well as get access to some of our episodes early if i ever do get them done early you will be the first to know and the first to hear all right so until next time i will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch See your music's back in the charts. Well, that was when I was a rock and roller. Well, what are you going to be now, John? You want to watch out? Because I'm going to be just like you, Uncle. Now, I'm going to be a real rock and roller.